Welcome to You Hear It First, an unofficial and unfiltered oral history of MTV News, which for the next six weeks is preempting your regularly scheduled Friends and Neighbors podcast. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and for much of its 36 years, MTV News was where young people everywhere heard their music, movie, political, and pop culture news first. And from 1996 to 2014, I had a front row seat first as digital producer and eventually senior vice president. Whether covering Madonna's latest music video, Will Smith's latest blockbuster, presidential elections, or the fight for marriage equality, MTV News was a laboratory for experimentation and a place where rules were made to be judiciously broken. To be sure, there were long days and lots of pressure, but our colleagues made those epic shoots and overnight edits tons of fun. And so well before the department was shuttered in May 2023, I started making plans to dig into the stories behind the stories from the people who told them. Welcome to season one of You Hear It First. Correspondent John Norris was present at the creation. He graduated from writer-producer in 1992 and he began anchoring The Week in Rock. In his more than two-decade tenure, John interviewed everyone from Britney Spears to Janet Jackson and Elton John, UN Secretary General Kofi Annan, US Senator John McCain, and Vice President Al Gore. He quarterbacked MTV's Choose or Lose election coverage and led pro-social programming on drug use, gun violence, sexual health, and anti-discrimination. As a perennial figure on the red carpets at the MTV Video Music Awards, Movie Awards, and Grammy Awards, John's live capabilities were legendary. As a self-described retrophobe whose social media profiles read, the world only spins forward, I was thrilled to spend a few minutes looking back with a journalist that as a teenager, I could never have dreamt to know, let alone work with. It's an interview that, like John, is a broad, deep, thoughtful conversation that traces the arc of his career with stops in the club with Madonna, in court with Michael Jackson, on the VMA red carpet with Green Day, in Cuba with Chris Cornell, and much, much more. Probably most of the world um, grew up being a music fan, and I was always kind of all over the place with my music taste, you know, like I, I, I liked pop music in the 80s, and I liked became a big Anglophile and a fan of like new wave and British new wave in the eighties and stuff. And came to New York, came to NYU and I'd seen MTV, you know, I, we didn't have it at home where I grew up. Cause you know, I think it was slow to get into some markets in the yeah. early days. I loved what I'd seen of it. And then through a weird connection from my dorm at NYU, an internship as a, like a just junior free labor producer on the top 20 video countdown first hosted by Mark Goodman and later by Adam Curry. And I, so I was like a writer slash producer on that. And it just morphed into a job in the news department as a writer. Dave was there, Michael Shore. I don't know if you ever knew Michael Shore was our editor. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. So I was just like this cub writer and in the news department. And then they brought in this legend named Kurt Loder, and because the VJs had been doing the news before that, right? right? Yeah. And they wanted to make it a proper news department. So when they brought in Kurt, it was like everything, it, it just took it in terms of visibility and respect, I think, to at least 
some degree of respect uh, to a new level. And eventually they realized after Kurt had been there maybe a year that, well, he's going to travel. Right. <laughs> so we need we need somebody to be sort of a fill in for him who we got, you know, and, they, you know, it was a much smaller operation. It's not like they had a ton of money to spend on on news, a whole team of news talent at the time. So they just tried out a few of us. I don't even know if anyone else on staff auditioned, but they did audition other outside people to be a fill-in talent. And I was comfortable on camera, I would say, because I've been a kid actor growing up in Houston. Me and my brother were both like kid actors. And my brother has gone on to be like a absurdly successful playwright decades later. He and I both did plays and I did a little film and TV that down there too. But my point is I was pretty comfortable on camera, but I, yeah. I never really read read from prompter before. That was kind of a new experience. Yeah. But it turned out I turned out I was not half bad at it. So they were like, you know what? It, it's good enough. It works. So <laughs> so 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 when when Kurt would travel, I would fill in for him. And then little by little, for one reason or another, I would do a little bit more and more on camera stuff. But it was slow. It was slow. At first, I mean, the very beginning, the only time I was on camera was when I would fill in in an anchor role for Kurt, right? For, for the 10 to the hour news breaks. And if I ever did field work, like interviews, and that was very slow going at first, interviews with artists, I was, I had to be off camera because oh, I wasn't, right. I had, didn't have a talent contract. I was still a writer, really. I wasn't really on camera formally till 1990. So when people say, when did you start? Yeah. It's, it's a complicated story because it was a gradual process, but I usually say 1990 because that's when I was fully considered an MTV talent. That always struck me as a defining feature, the full competency, writer, producer, and quote-unquote talent, anchor. How did that inform the work? I would say it informed it more and more as time went on, and they let me have more editorial input. Because at first, I was a journalism graduate, and I, it was, it was, it's not like, I, I, obviously I'd written in the news department, I'd written daily news, and I'd even contributed to, to some early, early documentary type stuff. But um, let's face it, a lot of broadcast news outlets treat talent as talent. Right. Right. And it is the expectation of the producer slash writer to often completely write copy for that talent. And I think every case is different. If you were to go to CNN, I'm sure you would find some anchors who are effectively just that. And in some cases have been doing it for many years, yeah. and probably still have the majority of their copy written for them. And they may have some editorial input and, and write to edit before they go on air. But I, but it took me, I would say, quite a while to be treated as something other than talent. Also, I will say this, that as, as I got busier and busier in an on-camera capacity, the time I had to spend to writing, especially long-form stuff, got more and more limited. So by the time we got to the mid to late 90s, I was frequently put in a situation where, oh, we need this VO done in 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I would, they'd be like, you know, change whatever you need to change. But, 
you know, pretty much we need to stick with, with the script that I was handed. Did you experience a change in the department and or did you begin to feel the audience's awareness of you in the world after you went on air for a while? Yeah, somewhere around the early to mid 90s, definitely more people would know me and recognize me and um, even artists. I don't remember what year Blonde Ambition, the Madonna tour film came out, but I had barely been on camera at that point. I think I was still really officially Kurt's fill-in and Kurt went over to Japan and covered the, the, the opening of that tour. And they had, I think they called it Breakfast with Madonna. And so for 15 years or so, Madonna and Kurt were inseparable. Their, their exchanges were, were, were you know, they, they're, they're the stuff of MTV legend, yeah. right? You know, I mean, from that interview to many of the other ones, because it was always a little bit, you know, she liked to wind him up and that yeah. and that. It was always great. It was, it was great, great television. And um, and he loved her. You know, he really did. But there was always this great banter between them. And I got invited to the premiere party of the movie, Blonde Ambition. But again, I'd only hardly been on air. And it was down at this downtown New York club called The World, which is sadly long gone. I remember Madonna sitting up in this uh, little raised VIP area with some of her dancers, Jose and Lewis and, and other people from the film. And, and I'm just in the crowd. I'm standing down there on the dance floor, kind of the crowd just hanging out and kind of trying to bleed into the scenery because I'm like, I can't even really believe I'm here. Yeah. And she kind of is, she kind of yells at me and she's like, hey, hey. And look up, I'm like looking over my shoulder, like, who, who's you talking to me? <laughs> right. And she's like, yeah, come here, come here. Waves me over to her. And she goes, we just wanted to say hi. And I'm like, hi. And, 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 and she says, she goes, we just want to say we really love you and we love your clothes because you always wear really, really great clothes on air. And it is true. Decades later, our friend Jim Candiello put together a compilation of my many beyond envelope pushing looks over the years, totally. especially on VMA red carpets. To see them all together like that, there were some ones that even that I cringed at. So my response to Madonna was, well, thank you for saying that. I'm not sure my boss agrees. I think he finds them a little gay. <laughs> and she's like, what? You tell your boss he can kiss my gay ass. <laughs> and, and, and she goes, that's what we love about you. And I'm like, well, thank you. And that was my first of what would end up being many interactions with the woman over yeah. the years. And um, I didn't really get to do a proper sit down until years later for like American life. So that was always Kurt's domain, as were many artists, you know, but I still got to know her throughout the 90s yeah. in a much closer way than I ever thought I would. In addition to your breadth, your depth of capability live is legend, dude. Like it was always like John can handle any live situation period, which may have been a, you, you may view that as a drag. So I'd love to hear, but it also speaks to your ability to be present in the now. Well, a lot of people say that, Ben, a lot of people have said that over cool, the years cool. and because so many people say it, I guess it's true, that, <laughs> but I mean it in all sincerity that if we could have done every single moment I'd been on camera from 1990 through the end of 2008 Every news break, every special, every MTV News 1515, Week in Rock, live, live, live. Yeah. 
I would have liked to have done that because I think there's an energy. Yeah. When you do something live to tape, it has to bring with it sort of a, a little bit of a laziness, a little bit of a relaxation. When you know you're live, you also knew you have to be on point. You know, you've got to go where you've got to go and you've got to be flexible, but you also have to have just sort of at your fingertips, a fair amount of knowledge about whatever it is you're reporting on. You can say I was good at it and that, thank you, but I would put a lot of that just down to homework. Yeah. You know, I watch a lot of cable news, a lot of red carpet shows on online and stuff and yeah. from various outlets. When I hear a red carpet interviewer clearly is on top of their shit. Someone like Josh has an encyclopedic yeah. knowledge of film in general, but specifically of the the event he's covering yeah. or the premiere he's covering, whatever it is, man, you really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to what are you wearing and who you're excited to see? The worst. I mean, really? Really? Well, we could have a bot do that. So I don't think I necessarily had any great talent at, at live, except preparation is, I think, 80, 90% of it. My uh, ability to do live meant that every year the VMAs would come around and I would think, is this the year I get to graduate to home base? <laughs> you know, but no, because Kurt had a lock on home base and they were going to put a woman with him, right? Yeah. Yep. One year I got to be at home base and it was it was because Kurt was out. He was on a leave. And it just so happened that they put me there. And I was like, I, I, I was like, how? And this was late. This is like 2005. We were in brutally hot Miami. That was just why anyone ever thought that was a good idea. <laughs> but my second year in Miami, after just sweating balls through the first year of it, <laughs> I was wearing a literally, I'm not kidding you, a backless shirt. Thousand on the red percent, carpet. Thousand percent remember. In fact, I in my head, I was like backless before you said it. Thousand percent. When they took a wide shot from behind, you would see me with a bare back. And Trey Cool walks over to me. Green Day come over to do a little interview. Homophobia and, and stuff is a whole nother conversation that we could have about the way that that manifested itself, particularly throughout the 90s when I was coming up. But at a certain point, you knew the people who were good hearted and not that way. And the people who still harbored some of that, but Trey comes over to me and he goes, Johnny Norris never looked gayer. And I'm like, well, thank you, Trey. It's always nice to see you too. And he's like, I, you know, I'm just kidding. But yeah, because at that point I was just like, this was fucking MTV. That's you know? right. And, and like, if you can't, I mean, now think about now a pre-show now would have, maybe non-binary talent would have talent who's able to present themselves in whatever they, they way they want. Yeah. Right. But at the time, because I was seen among the on-air team as somewhat senior expected to be, you know, the more responsible together one, if they thought I was going to wear a suit and tie in Miami <laughs> when it was 98 <laughs> degrees out, are you kidding me? I would have looked like you'd poured a bucket of water over my head. You did so much important work day to day and in terms of pro-social programming. You made a real impact for thousands of kids, man. Like, I think there's a real legacy there that I hope you get positive reinforcement for. What a tremendous legacy, man. Like, you gave voice and, and provided representation at a time when it was really scarcely 
visible and possible. This is all shit I thought about writing in a book, but I'm so anathema. You know, I find looking backwards so anathema. I'm first in line, sir, if you ever choose to. I have a lot of books in my head, but they're not necessarily memoirs. And I know the way publishers are. And the only thing I could ever possibly get greenlit is a memoir. And I, the idea of like, that just puts me off. But I'll tell you that I'm conflicted about the way I handled sexuality in, in throughout the 90s and, and into the early 2000s, because I would never call myself closeted. But at the same time, I never was particularly, and I, ne- I certainly I never went on TRL and you know, said, oh, she's hot and made a, and pretended to be straight or whatnot. Yeah. But I had to do a lot of hip hop. I was honored to do a lot of hip hop. I got to interview Tupac and, and 50 Cent and, and, and Snoop multiple times yeah. and got to do a lot of hip hop. DMX. Now, some of these people were, if not explicitly homophobic in lyrics, they there's certainly the vibe about being around them, it was, I, I mean, you could say that about some hip hop today. And again, I cover a lot of young hip hop, but I'm telling you, man, generationally, there's even within the hip hop community, there's been an absolute palpable evolution. Yeah. It's just not, Gen Z kids just are not pressed about yeah. it in the way that boomers slash Gen X and millennial rappers were. So I would frequently walk out of an interview and also with, believe me, Rock doesn't get off scot-free in this either. Yeah. For all of the rose-colored glasses people like to put on, oh, that was the golden age of alt-rock and, and alternative was so cool. Dude, there was as much alpha male energy around the likes of Jane's Addiction and not even to get into new metal. Before we even get into that, which I think was undoubtedly culturally a backlash to the rise of boy bands and pure pop being finally embraced by MTV in the mainstream. But even what passed is alt-rock. We were, so, I guess, to believe was being made by guys who were all much, so much more open and had sort of like moved beyond homophobia. That's a, that's a load of shit. There was as much sort of aggro male, like, I mean, yeah, sure, they weren't Nikki Six. And Motley Crue, you know, doing lines off strippers' asses, maybe that was as testosterone-laden as anything. And mm-hmm. so there were many a time when I'd walk out of an interview with a rock artist or rapper and feel like they might have been mumbling, you mm-hmm. know, faggot. And I'm sorry, I don't use that word light. I don't use that word often. But I didn't ever do a coming. You know, this is the era of Ellen on, what was it, Alder, yeah, the advocate yeah, saying, yeah. yep, I'm gay. I never did that. I had Judy Weeder from The Advocate once say to me, John, we'll, we'll give and consider giving you the cover. Don't you want to do the art, the coming out piece with us? I had Chaz Bono at the time, Chastity yeah, Bono, yeah, yeah. come on the Choose or Lose bus asking me if she could write that piece with me. Wow. You know what I did? I tried to pass the buck to Dave, our boss, Dave Sterolnik, and say, right. I just don't yeah. think Dave would want me to do that. So what does she do? She goes to, to Dave, <laughs> and Dave's like, I don't care. He can right. do whatever he wants. <laughs> There's a little part of me that feels like, did I let down the, the kids who would have gained a lot? Maybe, I don't know. Maybe they wouldn't have, but if there's even a chance that they would have from being more open and outspoken at that time, did I do them wrong? And did I drop the ball on that? So I wouldn't say I beat myself up over it, but I, here in my later years, I'm 
more than vocal about such shit on Twitter on yeah. a daily basis. So I have no problems mixing it up with anyone from hip hop to rock or whatnot. And if it took me that long to find an aggressive voice about that, whatever, it is what it is, I guess. I wonder, John, if living well is the best revenge, if it wasn't necessary to make a headline out of it, but instead to just live well. Even today, I still get people saying to me occasionally, I never knew you were gay. And I'm like, does it matter? And they're like, right. no, of course <laughs> it doesn't matter. But And also it was maneuvering between my musical tastes for a good portion of the late 90s, because not Kurt, nor anyone else really wanted to do the pure pop that was emerging. Yeah. I kind of got that handed to me and I was happy to do it. I was like stoked to talk to Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. But at the same time, like I would be covering Backstreet Boys in 1999 and I might go home and listen to Neutral Milk Hotel yeah. or Rage Against the Machine or, or Wu-Tang or I don't know. And I liked the fact that I could do those things and I could go out on the road as I did with Rage and Wu-Tang touring together. Yeah. And when ODB, I did a whole a very, it is highly entertaining. If you ever, there's some clips out there of, of some segments, uh, MTV News 1515 that I shot at in LA at a, one of the clubs out there. But Dirty was doing a solo show and I had to struggle through segments of an MTV News 1515 with him. And all he wanted to do was mess with me. Yeah, It was super fun though. But the fact that I could do that or be on the road with Korn, we did a, I did a three day thing with Korn, be on the road as I was a couple times with you too, and also do where I could indie. And then by the, by the, my last, I'd say four years at MTV, all I wanted to do was indie rock. At that point, they weren't really featuring a ton of indie rock on MTV News Linear, they would like, it was all sort of shuffled off to online. And then then they finally ended up giving me this series I got to do where I got to kind of like do, talk to whoever I wanted to. And I got to talk to like the Black Lips and Fleet Foxes and at the time, Anthony and the Johnsons, Deer Hunter. And I was like, this is so awesome. And then I ended up getting to do a lot of bigger names like the AAS and Interpol and people like that. So this is what I mean when I say that I was just all over the place musically. And I, I suppose I can kind of continue to be. I think that breadth and depth is such a tremendous asset and such a strong referendum on on you. But, but I can get also how <laughs> in a culture and in workplaces that tend to prefer, you know, uh, simplest terms and most convenient definitions, as John Hughes once wrote, that that can be challenging simultaneously, right? Yeah, it changed by the early 2000s because I, the early 2000s is when they really expanded the the on-air staff at MTV. And partly it was because when they did the street team for right, Choose or Lose right, in 2000, right. that's when Gideon came in. And Gideon was awesome. You know, I thought he was super cool. He was like the cool kid I always wanted to be, you know. And then Sway came in, who's like an absolute icon in hip hop. And then Ian Robinson was there, who was a metalhead and, and new. A to Z, you know, hard rock and heavy metal. So all of a sudden you had sort of genre specific correspondence. Mm -hmm. Gideon would do a lot of indie stuff. Sujin would do a lot of pop. Sway had a lock on hip hop as he should. And Ian was doing a lot of hard rock. So I guess you could say I kind of was left a little like all the young guns, the newer faces are here doing this. 
where does that leave me? And I just kept going till they kicked me out the door. Hey, it's Benjamin. In our post-pandemic world of hybrid work, heightened performance expectations, global unrest, and economic flux, there is a lot to manage. And most of us need all the help we can get. My company, Essential Industries, is a boutique, creative, coaching, and consulting firm specializing in individual and organizational strategy, transformation, communication, and collaboration. You'll gain the skills to create, communicate, and collaborate effectively, face uncertainty with confidence, lead through transformation, and facilitate a positive, respectful, and inclusive work culture. So if you, your team, or organization need help building your business, sharpening your skills, managing yourself, or leading others, or you'd like me to conduct my Managing Uncertainty workshop for your group, visit benjaminwagner.com or email at benjaminbwagner at gmail.com right now. I'd love to help. Now back to the show. Do you remember a moment when you were on location somewhere or you're off camera with an artist where you just thought, well, this is a long way from, you know, my NYU dorm? Yeah, sure. There are a lot. The first big trip I ever got to go on, certainly the first international trip was to go cover the Freddie Mercury tribute concert at Wembley. And to think that I was watching David Bowie and Annie Lennox doing Under Pressure. Mm. But it's also like the specter of Freddie who and what he meant and his truth having to be, by choice, I suppose, concealed, as we all know, and the way he died. And it touches you in ways decades later still. Back then it was like, yes, seeing this like cavalcade of talent in front of your eyes was just like, there's Elton John, there's... Guns N' Roses, and that was certainly one. And um, getting to go to Cuba right. in like 2005, I went to Cuba with Audio Slave. I never thought in a million years I'd get to go to Cuba. We chartered the Miami Heat's team plane because it was off season, I guess, for them or whatever. And we flew to Havana, spent three or four days in Havana with the band. They played a waterfront show right in front of the U.S special interest section. So because it's right next to the U.S. special interest section, there's all this anti-U.S. graffiti and stuff. And this was post-Iraq war, post-Abu Ghraib. I mean, the politics mixed with the the music and what it meant to these people who to see like Western hard rock there probably for the first time. And, you know, Morello was such a cool, brilliant guy. And, you know... Cornell too, like, you know, there's so many people that I cross paths with over the years that are not no longer with us on a non-music level. I got to be in Cambridge, Massachusetts on the very night at the very moment that they first began issuing same-sex marriage licenses to anyone in this country, man. Now this gets me emotional. I never thought I would see that in my life. And to get to be there and reporting on it and talking to couples that Man, we're able to have their relationship recognized like that. You can't you can't possibly put a price tag on what an experience, at least for some of us, like that means, you know? Yeah. I talked to Sway after he got to be in Grant Park on the on election night of when Obama was elected and what it was like for him to be in Grant Park watching that and 
man, we talked after that. And it's almost like you can't put it into words. There are things that touch you on a far, far deeper level than uh, music and just pop culture. You did so many pro-social shows, half hours, hours, campaigns, you know, gun violence, anti-discrimination, drug use, sexual health. Honestly, a lot of that stuff would be just as or more relevant today. Yeah. Dude, I was called downstairs to, to run on at the last minute and be on TRL because we were taking live footage of this shooting that was happening in real time yeah. at a high school in Littleton, Colorado called Columbine. And look how many years later and how many yeah. carnages Kids later, has yeah. this country witnessed later. And we're in exactly the same place. In fact, I mean, we're in a worse place, you know, and we did specials on gun violence. We did specials on on um, hate crimes. After Matthew Shepard died, we did a whole 24 hours of the channel going black after Matthew Shepard was murdered. He didn't just die. I should yeah, be, yeah, be clear yeah, about that. Yeah. The channel went black and, and it scrolled the names of hate crime victims from over the years. And I that was one of the my proudest moments of MTV. There were many proud moments. You know, that was a all these years later, what they now like to call woke. Yeah. You know, we were woke before before our time, and I'm so proud to have been a part of a place it was. And I credit, I give a good deal of credit for that to Judy McGrath. I think she was totally. one of the most honorable, iconic leaders you could have ever had. Yeah. You'd, you would think that I might have a lot more hard feelings for a place that kind of cut me loose at the end of 2008, but... I really don't, because how could you have hard feelings for a place where you spend that many years, you know? There's a shared humanity that makes it meaningful, right? Like the right. late night edits or, I don't know. I, I know I tell this story all the time and I could, I told myself I wouldn't, but like you sent me a note like 13 seconds after I read that REM broke up and like, and asked me if I was okay. And it was thrilling and moving and that's the little stuff right that like even in a corporation's like insistence on serving its shareholders in the absence of that humanity somehow for me outweighs all of it when juice world died just a few years ago you know tragically and suddenly i remember reaching out to it and i loved i love juice but i remember reaching out to someone who i knew was a particular juice world fan just to show that i was thinking of them. And, yeah. you know, I would do that. There are people I know who would feel that way about losing everyone from Gaga to Madonna to whoever. I'm forever connected to you in my heart for that moment, that instant, because a lot of people knows that those guys helped shape my perception of, of so many things, art and music and politics, identity, all of it. Right. But nobody else emailed me, John. I try to be aware of what touches people and what yeah. means something to people. And it's not that hard to just let someone know you're thinking yeah. about them. I, I, I've always felt that way, you know. I, I mean, it's not that hard. And sometimes it can mean something. That's all. That's all. Can you share with me like a challenging assignment or a hard lesson? One of my shortcomings, Achilles heels, whatever, is that I'm a pretty risk-averse person. So I, I think I probably have tried too much to not put myself in situations where there are too many variables, too many things that could go wrong. People can and absolutely do grow from having to 
maybe think on their feet and manage through uh, unexpected adversities and challenges. There were times when I was assi- I had assignments that I felt like maybe I wasn't the right person for. I was like sort of a little bit like, why am I the one? Why am I doing this? You know, but you know, like every, everything else, I just I tend to over prepare for everything, and I think part of my over preparation comes from a fear of things going sideways. Mm-hmm. I'll give it to you as, as one example of you talked earlier about me being good on live. Well, be careful what you wish for because <laughs> when you are weeks on end outside a courthouse, I'm talking about the Michael Jackson trial in 2006, something like that. And we were literally out there for a couple of weeks. Yeah. And we'd go back to LA on the weekend, but then we, we had to be back out there, camped out, waiting on a trial. So finally, when the verdict was the day, verdict day, it took forever. And we ended up having to vamp so long, so long before that verdict came down. And they didn't want to go to music videos because they were afraid that the verdict would come in the middle of a music video. So they preferred me to just keep talking. And you could only talk about the charges so much. You could only talk about the history of the case so much. It was so speculative. And I'm not really into that kind of speculation that a lot of the inside editions of the world are quite happy to do. I will say that once the verdict came down, some people from the Jackson camp came over and sought me out to say thank you for being one of the few who did what we thought was fair, you know, and responsible coverage of this whole thing. So that meant a lot to me. And then literally six months after I got let go from MTV, he passed away. And so they asked me to come back to do probably three solid days worth of, it wasn't just me, it was like a lot of talent. I think I think Mark Goodman might have been back there. A lot of people were back for that. I'm afraid that as we lose icons, maybe in the next 10, 15 years, I'll get called upon to do some more of that. And I the last thing I want to be is a museum piece. Yeah. I will do that. I will do those kind of interviews when it's someone that I feel like I had enough of a relationship with that I can reasonably offer something, but I don't want to just sit there and be called upon every time someone passes away. You know, when George died, Michael, George is somebody that I got to know fairly well and had lost touch with for the last probably six years of his life. And it was such a sad and shocking to a lot of us death that I did do several interviews that week about him and what he meant. And to me and to the world. And another good example, by the way, as an aside, of somebody who had to navigate the reality of homophobia in the 90s, right? Of a record executive, allegedly, I must qualify, saying, you tell that faggot that he's going to put out a record when we want him to, Uh you know? But why George wanted to divorce himself from Sony Music back in the early 90s, you don't have to look much further than attitudes like that. Mm There's a few people that I would still talk about, but I, I, I would only I would only do it if I felt like I really truthfully had something to say. I'm not looking to be on camera anymore. Dave Sirolnik is really kind of the existential pillar for much of the time, you know, and I'm just interested to hear from you if you have a great moment with Dave or a great 
story or a great lesson. I'm going to get emotional again talking about Yeah, me too. He really, really took good care of me. He couldn't have been a more top-notch leader with a vision for MTV News and, and beyond and studio production as well. But he was, as a television executive, I can't imagine that there's many better. And I say that, I've worked with a couple others. And I know that a defining quality of a couple of others is being a raging asshole. And Dave was the opposite of that. Yeah. The opposite of that. After a particular um, loss in my life in the early 2000s, I was going through a pretty rough patch emotionally and not always not always having the best days at work and not always bringing my A game necessarily. And I remember him him actually saying to me that if I needed to take time off, he, he said that I could, he would even recommend a couple of people that he thought I might want to talk to to help me and that he had named some names for me. And then when the day came that he let me go, he was the one that let me go. And they don't tell employees exactly all the reasoning that goes into the reason they decide to to let someone go. But I know that a lot of people, hundreds, were actually let go from the company that day. Mm-hmm. And what I've been told, and this is not on any authority, is that it was required that people be let go at certain salary levels. And you couldn't just let the bottom rung go. You had to let people go from a number of levels, right? But for whatever reason, I was the one, talent-wise, it was let go. And it really probably shouldn't have blindsided me in the way that it did because I was on camera less. And like I said, they had thrown me this indie rock series that I felt was more to just sort of shut me up a little bit. But they weren't using me as much for daily news. So I did feel a little bit like not as much of a priority. So Dave, when he let me go, I knew it was layoff day, but I was still in shock when I went in his office and he told me. I will say that in the history of layoffs, I don't know if there's ever been a kinder way of laying off somebody where some people were asked to leave the office that day. I literally was able to come back for several weeks. I was allowed access to the library to put together a reel. I was allowed to take days to clear out my, I'm a pack rat, so my office had a lot of shit in it. I I was allowed to take days to do that. One of the days I was back in the office cleaning out and stuff, Dave asked to take me to lunch. And we had a lunch, sort of a goodbye lunch, and we talked a lot about what I was going to do next. And, you know, Dave knew my passion for living in the moment and being engaged, staying forever engaged with current culture and youth culture and what was happening now. As I still am, all these 14 years later, and he suggested to me that I figure out a way to speak to like some more of my demographic about newer music. And yet that never really took took either because I'm that stubborn that I want to still write for and contribute to youth oriented outlets because I, I guess I don't feel like that because you turn a certain age, you have to give up on being engaged with new music and pop culture, I realize people have lives and and I'm I'm a, I'm the weirdo. I'm the one who's well into middle age and doesn't have a partner, much less kids. I have the luxury of immersing myself 24-7 in pop culture. You know, I'm a weirdo. 
I admit that, right? So, so I knew that at the time, even during our lunch, I'm probably not going to do what you're suggesting that I do, <laughs> but I love that you're suggesting it. That's what I have to say about Dave. He yeah. was, he was, abs- he's a, a gentleman is the word I would use to describe Dave. And I miss a lot of things, but I do miss him. Yeah, me too. Me too. How do you think of the legacy of news for you personally and in culture broadly? Well, I only have to go on what people tell me who were around for that. Absolutely innumerable people in all these years since have stopped me out of the blue in a bar, wherever, subway, whatever, say how much, not just I meant to them, but how much MTV News did especially if they were 90s kids, it would be like, you were the source, bro. You were the source. And then occasionally, from time to time, you'll even get that one that cites all the stuff we were talking about earlier, the pro-social stuff. Then you really feel like you've touched people. I like to believe that MTV News, in the years after I left, continued to touch people to a degree. But I will say that from an outsider's, a rank outsider's point of view, you can't deny that they deprioritized it, right? And it just became less and less of a priority. And there was a, a time about five or six years ago where they did this really shocking, but in a great way shocking, noble experiment of bringing in all these high-powered writers, Jessica Hopper from Pitchfork as an editor, and all the, and I won't name them all, but really, I mean... Better writers than me. I mean, really kick-ass writers. People who work at places like the New Yorker now. Yeah, yeah. And it lasted, what, nine months? Yeah. Until they pulled the plug on that. But I was like, whoa. I mean, this is the kind of writing and journalism that, I, I mean, and I'm talking about long think pieces and stuff. On the lighter side, I loved some of the correspondence and, and stuff that came after me. Christina Garibaldi, I, I worked with as a PA, and Christina was wonderful. Yeah. And, she, and she became this absolute joy to watch on camera. And then people people after her, you know? Meredith, Meredith Graves was a really cool addition to the on-air staff. So they went through, I thought they went through some interesting permutations and experiments, but over time, it felt like less and less of MTV News. Yeah. And then, until it got to the point where, oh, I only saw Sway at the VMAs. Right. I don't think it had to be, but I think choices were made that ended up having letting it die. And letting it die is the way I would characterize it. Yeah, they did finally pull the plug, but it was on life support at that point, I would say. How do you think about it for yourself personally? Like, how do you fit it into the arc of your time on Earth, John? Well, two decades of my time on yeah, Earth, so yeah. it wasn't everything I was, but it was a gigantic part of who I was for a huge part of my time. And I'm, I guess my next chapter, 14 years later, is one that's still kind of trying to be figured out, to be honest with you, Ben. So being by nature a Peter Pan like I am, it might not have been the most healthy place for me to spend all those years because it allowed you to, to live in this false, perpetual youth. And you weren't, but you felt like you were. So in a sense, it might have not have served me well <laughs> as far as being a grown-up, but 
I wouldn't trade it for anything. It was an incredible experience. You Hear It First, an unofficial and unfiltered history of MTV News is an essential industries podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. And visit BenjaminWagner.com for more episodes and information on our creative coaching and consulting services. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends.